Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, episode number 88, Paul Ekloff, a former United States Secret Service agent. He spent 23 years with the United States Secret Service. Ten of those years was on presidential protection details. Paul comes on the show. He talks to us about the Secret Service. He talks to us about crime, about his life in general. And here, hey, here's the thing. This is not the first episode. I mean, this is the first episode with Paul, but this is not the last episode with Paul. I plan on bringing him in at least two more times. And I got to be honest with you, I'm also thinking about bringing Paul in as a recurring guest. I think he's absolutely amazing. And another aspect of this, for those who know my history, you know that at one point in my life, I screwed over the United States Secret Service. I was working as an informant with them. They absolutely gave me the opportunity to turn my life around. They were outstanding, outstanding, outstanding agents that I worked with. I, uh, I was not very receptive at that point in time about changing my life. I, I was absolutely comfortable with being a criminal. And um, I regret that deeply every single day. To be able to have someone like Paul Eckloff on this program knowing that he was this, you know, outstanding agent, that he's from the United States Secret Service. It's one of the most humbling experiences of my life. And I am extremely, I'm beyond grateful that the gentleman agreed to come on the show. Uh, Paul today, he works with LexisNexis. He does an, an extreme amount of good, combating fraud, um, educating people on any number of different topics. He works to combat human trafficking as well. It is an absolute honor to have him on this show. And I absolutely plan on bringing him back as long as he'll keep coming back. So um, that being said, um, we're going to get with the show. Hey, if you guys don't mind, take a moment, press that subscribe button. I don't care if you're on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, whatever, press the subscribe button for me. All right. It, it, it helps. Um, you know, I've been talking about, I'd like to make the, get this show where it's making money. Honestly, guys, I don't think I really care uh, whether the show makes money or not. I, It's moments like these that uh, allow me to grow as a human being. And at the end of the day, that is worth more money than I could possibly imagine or want. Um, that shows like this take precedence over everything. Uh, this is a great show. It really is. Um, even if I am the guy that's hosting it, it's a great show. And it's because of Paul. That being, that being said, we're going to get started. Uh, I'm a big guy on data. All right. And mm -hmm. I, I believe that data makes all the difference in the world. If you have the proper information, you can achieve what you want to achieve. You know, mitigate the crimes, stop attackers, what have you. Um, we do have a lot of individuals, a lot of, of organizations out there that are against the use of data in many circumstances, which would save individuals, stop these crimes from happening, um, identify attackers, things like that. And I, I guess before we dive into this, and, I, and this, this will be included on the show, no doubt about that. But um, I just kind of like your opinion on that, because my opinion is, is, hey, use the data and get the damn job done. Yes, I, I understand and I, I I respect your privacy. 
I do. I, I'm all for privacy, but by God, when when things are when the shit's hitting the fan, and we need this information, get the information. Well, I posted that about that today. Like, okay. and I, I hate that we have to caveat that privacy is important. I don't want, I don't want nation state actors. I don't want um, criminals. I don't want predatory lending institutions and marketers just scooping up my data. I think it's a use case. I think the, the majority of problems are algorithms that harm children, uh, bad content, and scooping up this data for for marketing primarily, just so you can, so that when, when my wife says she wants a particular car, suddenly every ad is on there. And that's a fact. We used to think With that, that car. I'm yes, no, I'm not a conspiracy uh, person at all because you know whenever and especially in, we could go into this latest magic bullet bullshit, but um, <laughs> it's it's interesting to me that those use cases they don't they don't want to hear it because there's this altar of privacy, this sacred privacy. Well, how many children are you willing to sacrifice right. on that altar? How, is is it is it ten if it's not yours? Is it two if it's in your family? Is it one as if it's your child? I do think you need common sense protections and a national data privacy law. But I think you need to have even the GDPR, which is historically far more controlling of that, has use cases allowed for law enforcement investigations of, of fraud, waste, abuse, uh, transnational crime. But some of these ones that are going out, they're not aimed at data. They right. are specifically targeted at law enforcement. Defund the police backfired. You can't walk around D.C. right now. You certainly can't step without going in human excrement in San Francisco. No, broken, no. Broken windows policing works if it's done humanely. Right. Um, it, you always have to add that human element in. But these absolutists, it's interesting because if you look, they're they're against algorithms that harm adults, but they're against a law that protects children from harm from algorithms. They're they're, they want to break down the, um, the monopolies of Apple and Google and Microsoft, but they're against the Restrict Act, which holds them accountable for harboring CSAM on their platforms. Right. They're against the Stop CSAM Act because they say it violates their privacy. I'm sorry, it does what? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not for scanning people's individual phones for material because every parent has a picture in a bathtub. We don't need to inundate the National Center for Misquoted Children with, with, with good parents. Right. But a cloud? Apple refuses to search their cloud for CSAM. Right. Um, I'm looking at an article on Forbes right now that I was just reading. It's astounding to me that people think, and in law enforcement, there's something known as curtilage, that if you're committing a crime, I cannot enter your curtilage, basically from the curb and throughout your property without a warrant. If you put trash out, we can do trash pulls because it's outside your curtilage, and there are laws for that. Sure. Your phone is your curtilage. The cloud is not. So it's I agree funny. With that. That's like tossing. If you're uploading that, I, I'm baffled. That's a side issue. I'm really incensed at many of these groups because if you look at their concerns, they're either, you know, these academics who lives in these live in these bubbles of privacy and 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 demand, you know, privacy for everyone. And this is intrusive government, the surveillance state. The problem right now is everybody is so polarized. There is no middle ground anymore. It's the bias of the binary or the prison of two ideas. Negotiation is dead. There can be privacy and security. They are not mutually exclusive. And just like we'll talk about in the future with pandemic crime, you can have speed and security. 
Right. We were told you could not that any friend. And that's what they tell us now. This is like what you look at is people who don't read beyond headlines. We were told that if you put any fraud controls in place, children will starve and seniors will lose their health care. This was on Bloomberg yesterday. U.S. child poverty service by most on record following expiration benefits. What they mean is when the pandemic, the, the, the public health emergency was declared over, they ended all the extra. Right. And so they're saying now people fall into the poverty line. At the end of the first sentence, it says more than doubled from a record low in 2021, but remain below pre-pandemic levels. So it must not be on record because it's lower than it was pre-pandemic. You just mean you expanded a welfare state that that bleeds trillions of dollars in fraud, waste and abuse and don't want common sense controls at current funding. What if you increased eligibility like instead of making the poverty limit for, for say, SNAP, say making it, you can have $10,000, make it 20, but actually control it. We feed 40 million Americans on SNAP, which is sad in, 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 in a world of excess, why anybody goes hungry. Right. But we also give away a billion dollars a day to criminals and to just fraud, waste, and abuse. I mean, that's um, the problem, right? I mean, if, if, if proper security were implemented, in these government programs, whether it be SNAP, FEMA, whatever, I'm just thinking of the stuff that you can go on Telegram right now and see the tutorials to rip everything off. Yes. If, if proper security were implemented, which is not difficult to do, you would be able to mitigate a, a vast amount of that crime and therefore expand the benefits to more people. But the problem is, it's, absolutely, it's political. I think I would like to feed 50 million Americans. But I can do it with less money than we're spending now. SNAP is going to be a trillion dollar program over the next decade. But 100 billion of it will be lost to fraud. Right. Um, and nobody can agree on the numbers. It's astounding. You know, California lost between 30 and 40 billion dollars to unemployment fraud alone. One state of 50 lost a quarter of all money in unemployment fraud. <laughs> now, the problem is I don't get in the blame game. I don't. And I honestly, I hate the word bureaucrat because it's become, you know, a negative word. Right. I was a bureaucrat for 23 years. I worked for the public good. I, I sacrificed my own health, well-being, and that of my family for what I thought was the greater good of the country and democracy. Were there mistakes? Were there errors by the Secret Service? Certainly. But it's just astounding that you, 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 you insert politics and you use this gaslighting and say you're making children starve or you're you're right. taking away health care. Well, what you're trying to do is do it responsibly because it really is only so much money. How much how many loans do we have to give to countries that are adversarial to ours? And I won't start about the eight billion to Iran yesterday. But that, just, that was a nice headline. Let's be honest. Politically, I won't touch it, but I am astounded by that. I've been throughout that region. I've actually been on the Secret Service detail for the president of Iran. Oh, wow. I protected him with my life in New York. I was attacked by by people there, questioned as to why I would sacrifice my life for this man, and thanked all at the same time, which is kind of the story of the Secret Service. Depending on who's in power, you like the Secret Service or you don't. But my point was he was under my charge. I was going to put the same effort as if he was my own president. And if something happened to him on U.S. soil, imagine the international terrorist or financial implications of that. 
So you weren't going to do it on my watch. And I was proud to do it. I received a rather odd gift, something from, I think, a flea market in Tehran somewhere like okay. this art. But uh, it was that's an that's an hour long show in itself. The you the crazy details at the UN. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me ask you. Um, I want to ask one more question about uh, about the pandemic and, and this this before we move over into into your work for the Secret Service. The fraud that's happening, that's being allowed to happen. Do you think that's because we've got such polarization between the two political wings or is it simply because, hey, no one gives a damn. It's not their money. I think that that there's a part of it. I think it's awareness. To be honest, the pandemic was, we can't say unprecedented. It was unprecedented in the modern area. If it had happened in the Spanish flu, I'm sure there was a problem with however they gave that aid then. But it was unprecedented in the digital age, how you can get this aid out in a timely fashion. Right. So the first couple of months when the majority of the money was lost, it's hard to put fault at that, except that we should have known the fraud was occurring. Historical fraud had been occurring for years. You might have been a little aware of that. A little um, bit. <laughs> they just opened that floodgate and allow more to be stolen. Right. But as the money was flowing out, there had to be a realization. And I honestly am astounded why you wouldn't think that it was it's critical to just identify who is somebody who's applying for it. Or if you have rules in place, why not follow them? Right. I mean, there's three pillars to it. Identity verification at the front identity authentication of populations, which almost no one does, because once they get in, they're like, well, I've already approved them. And then there's asset testing, which California's recently received a waiver for, which violates law somehow. I don't know what these things are. All three can be relatively seamless. Right. Because we're told that families just won't apply. They'll get frustrated and will give up. All three are relatively seamless. They're now behavioral biometrics that they gauge how you interact with your phone. They're fascinating. There's one that has a patent for it knows the speed with which you move and the way you normally operate. And it will know if you yourself are entering your password under duress, that if someone has a gun to your head is saying he will hurt your children, it knows those tiny. And that's a benefit of AI. Right. Um, but that's a that's a niche thing that is easily implemented and is seamless to the user. But we're given this mantra that any and I. I my, in my group, they all call it friction. And I know across the, the anti-fraud, they call it friction. I don't like it because I'd never heard. I'm thinking about the average person sitting there. What do you mean friction? Right. Um, any effort by, you know, you've got to do a little effort to apply for these things, but you've got to do much more effort at the back end to ensure that the money's going to the right people. What we do in this country is we see that the the, the fishbowl is leaking. And instead of going to the, the Flex Seal family of products, feel free to monetize this show, um, flat, something on there, we just pour more water in while the right. fish are like struggling. It's not that hard. I mean, you're right. I, I had, um, I don't know if I, I may have told you this. I, I know I've, I've talked about it on my show and everything, but uh, when the pandemic started, I was, um, I was, I'd, I'd flown up to uh, Seattle to do a uh, commercial for T Mobile. And that was right when Seattle had, quote unquote, the patient zero up there. And I, I had been sicker than a dog before that flight um, came back. And of course, the pandemic was at that point, they were talking about lockdowns. And that's when, you know, a lot of the cybersecurity conferences and things like that were shutting down. And um, I called the family in to the kitchen. We did a round table and I was like, hey, you know, the way this story ends is with me uh, back in prison. 20 years because I'm going back to committing fraud because the speaking engagements are going, the consultations are going, 
everything else. And I, I was very fortunate, um, you know, just just mentioning that, voicing it, something that I'm historically not very good about, but just just voicing that fear, not only to my wife and sons, but to the FBI, to people in the industry who who knew me and things like that. It was like I had this safety net, and people just came in and they would check on me. FBI agents from up in Huntsville, they'd call me every couple of weeks. Hey, let's have lunch. You doing okay? You know, stuff like that. And um, they're actually know, human. God, yeah, human. they are. They're great. What, once you stop breaking the law, they stop being assholes. <laughs> uh, the majority of them. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> you know, my, my credit score absolutely tanked. Uh, we cashed out our retirement account, accounts, everything else like that. But I knew, and, and this is the point of that, I, I knew when the pandemic started to hit, when they started to announce the stimulus programs, especially the unemployment, um, I knew, by God, if you're if you're going to steal money, that's where you go right there. And yes. I got a call um, you know, a few weeks into it. I got a call from uh, AARP in Seattle, a guy named Doug Shadell. He used to run Fraud Watch there. And he was telling me, he's like, have you seen what's going on with unemployment in this state? I'm like, no, Doug, what's going on? And that was the state that uh, I think Forbes wrote about it. Uh, the Nigerians had stolen like a billion dollars in the space of a few weeks. They were able to cash out like 240 million of it because they didn't expect that degree of success. This is sounding. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, I mean, you're right. You, you, you could absolutely see, you know, the rise in fraud that was going on. And then all of a sudden the floodgates open. You know, historically, fraudsters, they had looked at at Part B Medicare fraud. They had done tax fraud, stuff like that. But but when the fraud, when the gates opened to that stimulus program, man, that changed well, the entire dy dynamic of everything. People don't understand. Like you go back to the Willie Sutton, the bank robber, who's why you rob banks, because that's where the money is. When you lay out four point five trillion with a T and we'll we'll unpack that a notch because as if I was a high school science teacher, I am a biology education, professionally trained major. That's what my life was going to be. I was going to be the next Jacques Cousteau. There you, you go. How, you see how that worked. I'm <laughs> landlocked on the hill. Um, but when you look at that money and it's almost like fraud, not only became expected, it became acceptable. Right. A, a, a man like you who ha whose brand is anglerfish and the Brett Johnson show and what you bring to the table with T-Mobile and the, and the AARP and these speaking engagements is a business. Right. So the plan for you is PPP loan or an EIDL loan. There were $800 million, roughly $800 billion, I have to get the, the letters right, laid out there by the Small Business Administration to keep small businessmen like you afloat. Now, you probably wouldn't be eligible, and we can talk about criminal justice reform and other things because they're going to look at your past and go, oh, no, right. regardless of your, your great work since. Except I was eligible. I, I got two $20,833 loans that were then, forgiven. Then, then God bless the USA because exactly. that to me is a success. When I look at that program and I realize you can almost prove that 20 to 40% was lost to fraud. And another 40% may have gone to unethical practices. I don't want to name them, but they rhyme with Tom Brady. Um, it rhymes with uh, Oprah Winfrey. It <laughs> yes, rhymes, yes, they do. It's not, not them, but it rhymes with um, Lady Gaga. It rhymes with Bruce Springsteen. Right. They received, uh, or Kanye West. It rhymes with Kanye West. Right. Um, 
they received millions, between two and three million dollars in these loans for a $3 billion sneaker company, for $100 million enterprises that didn't need to lay anybody off anyway, because what they do is, is remote. And those were all forgiven. And yet the majority of loans that were not forgiven were EIDL from real small businesses that had to deal with street side dining. I don't know about you, but I was tired of sitting at a picnic bench in a former parking space. Amen. It was fun in the warmer months or you know, in spring and fall in DC when it's not, you know, you're attacked by locusts and humidity. But or their restaurants were going out of business. That's what it was meant for. They still owe those loans. Those other people got them forgiven. Right. Someone like you is who it was intended for. So I'm thrilled to hear that it worked. And I know that it worked. Some people at the Small Administration had the best of intentions. And they have a, um, their, their OIG. The small SBA OIG is an amazing group that also works with the PRAC that we'll talk about, who are just an incredible, I think it's 18 or 19 offices of inspector general and the secret right. service and FBI that are going after this fraud because pretty much if you took money, you either need to send it back or just be aware uh, that, that, that they're looking at you. But yeah, it's weird that fraud became expected and accepted. And it didn't and that's the thing. accepted, accepted. That's, yes. that's, I mean, I, we know my history <laughs> <And> to, to, <laughs> to, to, to be at a point now where You've got a large subsection of society that is okay with it. That's that's odd. That's very odd. And it was, it's seen as white collar crimes are seen as victimless. Yeah. But the GAO reported that in the last 20 years, and now includes the pandemic, America lost $2.4 trillion to fraud, waste, and abuse. Trillion dollars. What could you do with that money? What people could you? And they don't want to hear that. Oh, it doesn't matter. But it, it would have cost literally less than probably over 20 years would have cost less than $100 million, maybe $200 million over spread over 20 years to prevent $2.4 trillion in loss. And that's a million to a trillion, skipping the billion. Um, to, this is something that astounds me. When people talk about billions and trillions. People don't realize what losing a trillion dollars means. A billion, a billion seconds ago was around 1992. Um, I had a cool mullet. I got ready to cut it off. A trillion seconds ago, I would have had that mullet with a saber-toothed tiger. It was 30,000 years ago. Right. It's the difference between 3,000 and 30,000 years. When you put in that context, people's heads need to spin and realize, because they think, oh, it's just to jump up in a couple of zeros. It's not. Right. It's to lose that kind of money. And to lay out, and now when we're seeing the fallout of inflation and rising food prices, and they're saying, well, people, the poverty people, there's more people in poverty. Have you ever heard of a self-feedback cycle? When you throw $5 trillion into the economy, costs go up, poverty increases, and crime increases as they target it. Right. Uh, I don't know if we need, obviously, we need better education in schools on finances and uh, and and how how the economy works, but you know, as I've told you before, there's an old adage that if you're young and not liberal, you don't have a heart, and if you're old and not conservative, you don't have any money, right. and if you're super rich and not liberal again, you don't have a soul because you've got so much money, you should be you should be giving it away. I, I mean, hadn't heard the third one, but yeah, it makes sense. That's, that's a Paul Ekloff <laughs> exclusive. 
Um, Let me ask you something, Paul. Um, I, 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 I do want to get back to this. Uh, we'll get back to this in, in another another show as well. But you had uh, high school teacher. You you just told me you wanted to be the Jacques Cousteau. My college application was an essay about if you could be anyone in the world for a day and see your life, who would you be? I wrote it as a first person account of being Jacques Cousteau. Yes, I did. Why? The red cap and everything. <laughs> so, so why did, did you grow up on the water? I mean, why, why, jog, why, why, why see the sea? I can, if I, if I sit down and get off the couch with my therapist, I grew up in a Navy family. My father was 27 years as a Naval officer. My okay. brother was a Navy test pilot. I went to university in Miami for biology and had a mullet. You know, it was a whole different world. I, my path to service to the country took a little longer than those in my family uh, go back to every every war since probably the French and Indian on this continent. Um, but I was, I think my father used to rock me in a rocking chair in front of aquariums. We would always live on the water. I love snorkeling. I love diving. It always fast. I had my first job was cleaning algae in aquariums in Southern California for $2 an hour in cash under the table. Um, I would ride my bike two miles through Huntington Beach, California, okay. and wipe algae at, at Pride and Groom Pet Shop. And what was funny is this, this young kid, I think I was in the eighth grade, um, people would ask me about the fish. And I knew more about the aquariums and the fish than the salesman. So they ended up hiring me at the phenomenal amount of $3.35, which you'll remember was minimum wage. It was. And I would ride my bike, and I I was just like, it was, I was rich as a king making $3.35. I eventually worked at another pet store when my family moved to another Navy base. And it always fascinated me. I loved biology. I loved animals, traveling the world and seeing that. So I was going to be, you know, the scuba diving next Jacques Cousteau. That's all right. So so family in the Navy, did you join the Navy as well or not? I did not. Okay. Uh, I was once uh, I was once introduced to an admiral at a party in Pearl Harbor. We go, oh, this is your, is this your son? And who's going to join the Navy? No, that's my other son. Uh, this is my son, Paul, who, uh, who drinks in college and has a moment. <laughs> Thanks, this is Dad. the other boy. <laughs> this is the this is the other one we talk about. So how long how long were you a high school teacher? I was a high school teacher um, in Miami for a year, okay. and then in rural Georgia for about five and a half. All right. So how was rural Georgia teaching? I loved it. Um, okay. I still have a home down in Georgia. I love the Atlanta area, and we were near Athens. Um, and what honestly, I taught in Miami in Liberty City, which okay. you know when you when you as I think I told you prior when when you work in an area that has its very own Grand Theft Auto game, things are hairy. But I would say that the students that I encountered and the people and the resilience, and this was an area where the game in in the school was to open the classroom door, flick off the lights from the hall, and they would pelt the teacher with books and then go stomp on him. But everybody, I had a sense of humor. So they liked Mr. E, and when the lights would go out, we would all duck. Um, okay. But I got out of there. I said, the students were amazing. I love my interactions there, but uh, followed other interests to Georgia and got a job up outside of Atlanta. I taught biology, physical science, chemistry, and then eventually developed a forensic science criminology course that interested me and I thought would be more interesting to the students. It was interesting. I had a student on one of the first episodes of, of America's Scariest Police Chases. Nice. Um, I mean, I, I guess it's nice. I still, well, I still remember interacting with this student. I won't name him, but I, I love this kid. I, I really enjoyed my students. But in this, a police officer pulled him over. He had a small bag of weed. He stuck a gun out the window and fired it three times 
in the center of the chest of this officer, who was the husband of another person I knew. Thank God he had a trauma plate. So he stumbled back. He had a bruised, cracked sternum. He stumbled back, fired into the car, and he was eventually caught. Okay. Um, but I had another student that shot a, a, a rival through a window, and then when he was bringing brought, he was brought to the emergency room. The kid sat up on the the stretcher, and the other one had followed him to kill him. They killed each other in the in the parking lot of the or in the in the waiting room of the emergency room. But that was a minority of students. I say those because they're maybe interesting. Right. I enjoyed teaching. Um, let me ask you something uh, yeah. on those students like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and and I'm adamant that that my choices of crime were my choices. You know, when I when I became an adult, I chose to break the law. These children that you that you were teaching um, that that went in on that criminal pathway, um, what degree do you think that that is uh, environment versus choice versus upbringing? What have you? I only can't blame education because they had a fantastic science teacher. There you go. Uh, um, no, I mean, obviously, there there's a poisoned ecosystem that many of these children are raised in without mentors and without opportunity. And um, perhaps the power of don't discount the power of the negative influence of those around them that they, they look up to. Um, you know, I looked up to being a huge nerd. I looked up to Carl Sagan and Jacques Cousteau. I didn't grow up looking up to a neighbor or someone who was a sports star that I could never achieve, right. that I could never attain to, or, or or crime. I don't know. I think society has an issue with that. I, I don't, I, obviously, that does play a role in it. It's not to excuse it, because I think for every one child that has a terrible childhood and goes to crime, I'd like to think there are 99 who didn't, who like I encountered in both rural Georgia and inner city Miami, who, who just wanted to, to do good and, and, and have a family and and achieve what you know the best that they could or just get by right. i don't think everybody chooses that path sometimes it's like water it'll find the path of least resistance and some people choose that everybody handles stress differently everybody handles things differently and unfortunately i do think that societal pressure causes some of that for certain i mean if not all of it i, I don't have the answer for sure well, I mean, that, that, and and the reason i ask that's one of the things that i that I, that I, you know i've been kind of struggling with lately um you know I look at my history I absolutely took the easy easy way out went went toward crime and uh you took a but, hard way to take the easy way I did pretty, I did I'm you hard headed did. if you'd have put that till you could have invented like Twitter or X or something something <laughs> but but you know there were so many people that that grew up in a very similar situation that I did um my my story while I mean my story is out there I mean my story is not the only one of its type from Eastern Kentucky. And, and a lot of those people, most of those people never engaged in crime. They, they, by God, they put their nose to the grindstone and simply did the right damn thing, worked hard. And sometimes they succeeded. Sometimes they did not. And one of the things I, that I'm having trouble with these days is, is, is trying to figure out why someone like me chooses a different one. Um, and I, I know it's a choice. I do. And I, there may not be an answer to that, but it's, it's one of these things I struggle with. You know, my sister, she shoplifts with me when I was a child. But other than that, she's she's a teacher. She's a good parent. She's a good citizen. She would never even think about breaking the law and never did after that one shoplifting experience. Um, so I, I have trouble figuring out why some people choose to do that and, some, and others don't. Well, I would say that most of the, and I hate, this is going to go down a rabbit hole that, that some people are going to see as negative. 
Sure. But everything stems from mental health. And people think when I say that, that I mean, well, you're, you're diseased or you're broken or you have something in your head that may, like, it's not that you were mentally unsound to go into crime, but, and I hate to use the term spectrum, but everybody's broken in some way. It's just a matter of where and how much. And so if it's, you know, if you have a combination of factors in your personality, whether it was narcissism, uh, whether it was greed, whether, you know, ego and, 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 and opportunity and other, you know, negative influences that lead you to that path that other people don't choose a resilience, a resilience that I battle with myself. And this is something I'd love to get into in one of our discussions sure. is mental health. Um, and I think this, this is why I love this conversation of, of your life experience and my life experience, which were probably greatly juxtaposed, but here we find ourselves together having a great conversation. Right. Um, to me, it's 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 suicide and it's mental health awareness. I've had some profound impacts in my own life and in my work and facing with it. Uh, I'm not really ready to unpack my own mental health issues, but at some point when I'm far beyond retirement, maybe I can. But you certainly see that in 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 criminal spheres and in, in facing those horrible life conditions. But you see it tremendous. It's a huge problem in law enforcement and the military. Um, everybody assumes that when they look around, that everybody around them is, is like them and perhaps mentally sound and not facing any challenges. I even have a shirt I work out, with, out in that says, be kind. Everybody's facing a battle you know nothing about. It doesn't, it could be serious PTSD from the military. It could be depression. It could be family issues. It could be financial. It could be, you know, arthritis and inflammation that they don't know affects their brain. It, everybody's facing something. So I wish people were less polarized and just more patient with each other. If everybody would pause before, and, and I've, I've done it too. I've got, you know, these road rage needs. Pause five seconds before you hit the horn. Is it really killing you? That, or start that, cursing like I do. Just curse in the car to yourself, but the light went green. Great. They didn't immediately hit the gas like they're playing Super Mario Kart. Give them a couple of seconds, Grace. Like give them something. You know, so yeah, it's that's something I'd like to talk about. But what moves people down those paths? We could unpack the psychology, sociology, right, of that. You know, but you know that that moving down the paths thing. So so you go from you, you were the high school teacher, biology. You come up with a forensics class. I'm guessing it was a body farm for high school, except not with real bodies or what? <laughs> yeah, Potter's Field. What was interesting was it was the time when HBO, you had Dr. Michael Bodden and Autopsy, and they would the go Quincy. into these- The Quincy guy. Absolutely. Yeah. You'd put the, you'd put the um, you know, I, I'd put my, my VHS in and record these shows for the students. And then I ordered books. I actually unearthed two of the best that I used when I was a head teacher, Death Investigator's Handbook an interpretation of blood-stained evidence at crime scenes. You stay one chapter, and you can open any chapter. Yeah, I can't show that one. Um, I can't show that one. Yeah, I mean, it's it basically Walk goes Walk into Home Depot scene. carrying that. People, people are going to look at you. Yeah, I mean, it's chapters on on burns and, and blood stains and, you know, decapitations. And you, know, you can, and the, the there's actual math behind how you tell where someone was stabbed. There's a, a sign of the angle of the length and width of a blood stain that shows you the angle that it hit. That's when you see those, that kind of stuff or the science behind fingerprints or animology, the bugs that show up on bodies. Right. It was fascinating to me. And rather than going water, water, you know, there's hydrophilic and hydrophobic. There's 105 to 108 degree angle between the high. I mean, 
I just put myself to sleep. That's what we wanted to teach kids about science. When there's science behind some fascinating crap um, that they see in their everyday lives, especially kids who see trauma or um, I either I either I know that I created at least one very successful criminal investigator who still does it today. I may have created a serial killer. I don't know. Um, I was and I even had people say, you're just teaching them how to get away with crime. I go, well, that's a cynical view. Right. May not be wrong, but it's a cynical view, um, which led me to want to make that my life's career. I was either going to become a forensic scientist which would require getting a master's degree or a PhD in it. And this is another aside. I think you'll find most teachers are terrible students. Right. Just like most uh, like PT instructors do not like taking classes because they don't want to be told how to do their workout. And teachers, like I was, I was a class clown of teachers conventions. Like it was, I was, uh, most of my teachers in, in school, I'm sure hated me but I knew how to entertain and I didn't. So I knew that this would be interesting. I didn't want to go back to school. So I thought, what if I become a federal agent? Right. Which led me to my real life's work. All right. So here's the question. And Hey, I, I get to Michael Bodden. I get hell. I'm, I'm, I watched all those shows too. I tuned into <laughs> HBO every time a new one came out. Yep. Uh, watched the Iceman cometh, you know, the dire, the, the, the interviews with him, watched all that stuff. And I get it. What I don't get is Yes, I get that you decide to become a federal agent, but why do you go into the Secret Service? Their charter—if I'm—their charter is protecting the nation's monetary supply. Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. They were founded actually in 1865 originally just to combat counterfeiting, okay. which was my first investigative work. And it—it's I mean, uh, I'm kind of a personal historian of the Secret Service and their history because they founded the FBI. They were the original CIA. They were all of these things. The first federal agency really that that had universal arrest or universal investigative authority. They never okay, arrested authority for decades. I did not know that. So, so stop just a second. So the secret service is the first organization. They, they found the CIA. They found these things are, are they don't found them. The work that they did pre was in that vein and predated. The okay. So, so why on earth did we need, and, and true comments, just, just disclosure here. I love the FBI, but, why do we need the FBI then if the Secret Service was already doing that stuff? That's a great question. Well, like I said, it, the U.S. Marshal Service was the first federal you know, agency that had you know, nationwide authority, but they were very jurisdictional. It was court protection and escorts and warrants and bonds, and they're, they're fantastic. They're fugitive stuff. Yeah. We just saw some of their work today where that fugitive they were out, was They were amazing. They were. They're, and they that are. work is incredible. And thanks to the work of law enforcement canines, I think, uh, they dragged him out of the woods. Um, the Treasury Department founded the Secret Service. It was an idea of an undersecretary because counterfeiting up to the Civil War was terrible. In the early 1860s, the federal government said, oh, well, we'll stop counterfeiting. We'll create the greenback. We'll create one dollar. That's harder to counterfeit. Well, before this, the, before the Civil War, there were 6,000 different banknotes. You could have the International Bank of Brett Johnson. I right. think you might have had that a few years Maybe. ago. I don't know. What exactly what you're arrested for, but that would be easy to counterfeit if I go to, to Rhode Island. So after the greenback, but what you did was you gave every counterfeiter one target. So before the Civil War, one dollar in every three was counterfeit. Okay. Up to around 1864, at that point, 50% of all money in circulation was likely fake. So if you had 10 bucks in your pocket, five dollars was fake. So, you, so there was a real danger of the entire monetary supply collapsing because of that. Yes, yes. And there was no trust in a federal system. Obviously, the Civil War 
um, revolved around slavery and you know states demanding this and other states demanding that. So there was a distrust of a federal system up till that point. Right. So one of the last things purportedly in the lore that Abraham Lincoln did before he went to Ford's theater on that fateful night, I believe it was April 11th, 1865, was to sign the Secret Service into being. Um, you find no record of that in the history under Treasury Secretary Edward Jordan. He, he assigned the former warden of the Capitol prison to head this new group, the Secret Service, um, to go after counterfeiters, to try and stop it. What's fascinating is William Wood was the first chief operative of the Secret Service. He was the warden of the Capitol prison. He essentially released 10 guys, you know, former criminals who knew where the counterfeiters were and said, go arrest your buddies. They did it. Within the first year, they shut down 200 counterfeiting operate, oh, wow. operations. And almost to this day, counterfeit went from one third to one half in circulation to 0.01 of 1% in circulation because of the continued work of the Secret Service. All the agents, operatives were summarily fired after five years for corruption. Of the, second, the, the second director in 1869 hired 10 more successful. And the same thing happened. It wasn't until our third director, our chief operative, that, that they got things sort of situated with the five-star, five-pointed star and the, the right. you know, worthy of trust and confidence and so forth. But that was the Treasury Department. They were so successful that they got loaned out to the other executive agencies. They said, well, when we have a problem, we'll loan them out here, we'll loan them out there. Like when I talk about the CIA during the Spanish-American War, um, there was intelligence was being stolen. They couldn't figure it out. So these loan treasury agents actually followed this foreign agent on a, on a train, got him to leave behind his case, and discovered the spying was being run out of the Spanish embassy in Canada and shut it down. Um, early in World War II, they, uh, it was Secret Service agents who discovered a plot by the Germans by intercepting things to purchase manufact uh, ammunition manufacturing things on the East Coast and not shut them down, but make it all faulty. So that by the time that ammunition made it to the troops, it wouldn't work. But as we get to the FBI, they started investigating other land crimes, the Teapot Dome scandal. A lot of congressmen got wrapped up in that for being for committing crimes. So Congress said, this is illegal. How dare you use Treasury agents for these crimes? These are not Treasury crimes. You must stop because they were their own buddies were being arrested. So Roosevelt said, OK, moved. I think it was 22 of them or a certain number of Treasury Secret Service operatives, along with other operatives to the Department of Justice, which became the FBI. OK. And then let's be honest. I mean, FBI initially comes out very politicized. Well, the problem is like and you've seen that recently with the right. politicization of law enforcement. But once again, just like students who commit crimes in these inner cities and what societal influences to paint a broad brush on the FBI because of the actions of some around Trump or January 6th of the actions of other agents about we can talk about the Secret Service at some point. It's just not fair. And it's it's not indicative of the good hard work that they do every day. But yes, you saw political targeting. You saw, uh, you know, I think even Harry Belafonte had an FBI file. But that all that to say that pretty much everybody has an FBI file. Trust but verify. You know, you've got to what we talked about, that privacy versus security. You've got to check. Like I was talking about this just today around data privacy. It's not just a matter of using that important information to identify criminals. How do you exonerate the innocent? Right. Because for every if I have to get a warrant just to do basically a Google search. I'm going to have to get warrants on a lot of innocent people because there's another guy. I'm, I'm betting there's a few Americans named Brett Johnson, and you don't want to do a subpoena on all of them. If I can quickly use information analytics 
to identify and exonerate the innocent. I can t use those limited resources to target the guilty, rescue a child. Or we didn't even talk about e-commerce right. uh, or, or just other things. Without information analytics, you know how much insurance would cost or loans? Because you would go to the worst scenario. Well, if the average American defaults on loans at 50%, you're going to be charged 20% on a loan and you're not going to the underbanked or the people without the resources aren't going to get affordable loans. And you're seeing that now as the inflation goes up and these, these data sources are getting attacked. Right. I digress as my no, name no, no, should no, have no. been. Well, my name is so the secret service, as, as you described coming up, I mean, just beyond phenomenal with, with the work they were doing, the, uh, the, the, the way they were mitigating the, the variety of crimes being loaned out to, to other, other, um, organizations what have you and then we get complaints from politicians that results in basically the birth of the fbi yes. at that point did the did the success that the secret service was having did that ever taper off or decline because of that or not i would say because of other things it only got better there's actually a book um by someone with the last name of johnson on the smithsonian press I'd have to dig it up. What's interesting is the early successes of the Secret Service in combating counterfeiting and stabilizing the United States currency and the financial system as we know it actually is one of the primary reasons, although we can question that today, but the average American trusts the federal government. That It's cooperative federalism. It wasn't a thing before the Secret Service. Their being worthy of trust and confidence in their success led to that. But I think the successes and the cachet of the Secret Service were not only built of the counterfeiting, but even today, most people don't know the incredible work for cyber crimes, cryptocurrency, and financial crimes that the Secret Service is involved in. Right. Because in 1865, obviously, we lost Abraham Lincoln to assassination. In 1881, we lost James Garfield. In 1901, we lost President McKinley. So after three presidents were killed, they said the government needed to do something because the stability of, of the government of democracy, the continuity of operations of the government, and the stability of everything that we know and hold dear, if you don't vote for them, you can kill them. Right. Well, that still happens around the world, not as much as it used to. They said, well, who do we have as a federal agency that we trust that can do something about that? So in 1901, the Secret Service started presidential protection okay their first protect what's interesting though they were loaned out uh grover cleveland's daughter uh baby ruth was like a national treasure i believe it was grover cleveland we had a guy named grover you gotta love that uh, his daughter baby ruth was a national treasure and there were some threats from some criminals that were being investigated they were going to harm her or hold her for ransom kidnap her so they loaned some secret service agents out on their summer vacation to protect her so the secret service's first official unofficial protectee Baby Ruth gave rise to the candy bar. They, the candy bar was not named after Babe Ruth, or it'd be called the Babe Ruth candy bar. Right. Baby Ruth is named after Robert Cleveland's daughter. And if I'm wrong on that, President, you can correct me and post. Please bleep me out and edit over me. Like I'm you not going to bleep you out. I'm going to sit there and say you're you're wrong. No, I I, I, <laughs> I think I'd heard that story, and you're you're absolutely right. Um, that's uh, and that's an amazing story. It is. So forensics, high school body farm, Secret Service. Why, uh, why Secret Service? Also was an instructor for Taekwondo 
and I owned a home beer and wine making supply shop and I founded one of the biggest beer festivals on the East Coast. So there was martial arts, beer drinking, science educator to Secret Service agent. What, what belt do we have in Taekwondo? Black, but as anybody who's studied martial arts knows that black is a, a first degree black belt is really the beginning. So I don't, I, you know, it just you means that you know, I do not. Okay. Um, it, it merely means that you can, you can get your butt kicked, but look good doing it. You know, like, uh, you, <laughs> by someone who really knows there were a lot of things in the, in the form that I studied and taught about pressure points and body things that are exactly what the secret service taught. We were allowed to name them in Taekwondo, the secret service because of legality calls it, you know, the, the sensitive area on the side of the neck, the area in the forearm, the side of the thigh, rather than the common pronial, the brachial plexus tie in or the various scientific things for them. But, um, I have not in many years. I, I, uh, I mean, I was, I was okay, but, uh, you know, I was, my first concussion was a kick to the face at a tournament in Alabama. So I didn't win that one and didn't do another one. Okay. <laughs> forgot I my name. You. I got you. <laughs> forgot my name after about a week after that kick, but I never went down, Brett. I never went. Down. Well, that's, that's a good thing. I think. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, probably I'm not a fighter. I'm barely a lover. So <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. Um, I used to, I used to give speeches in, in uh, when the secret service travels, you have these manpower meetings and I would give these inspirational talks because I just felt it was important because they were obviously with, with attacks on law enforcement and defunding the police and obviously post Cartagena, everybody wanting to crap them and denigrate the amazing work. I give these inspirational speeches, but I'd always start them. God, we may have to cut this, but I would always say, I'll keep this brief. My wife says it's better that way. <laughs> we, we may cut that. We may Maybe cut not. That. So, so you were, you were a secret service agent for 23 years. Yes, sir. And, and I, here's the deal. You, you know, I was an informer for secret service, but I still don't know a lot about the agency. I know much sure. more about the FBI. Um, you know, FBI agents, they, they, they specialize in one specific type of thing. They can, they can come in and out of that to a degree. Um, is it the same with the Secret Service? You, you go into one field of, of investigation or what? Well, every agent, it, it really is different. And those track, the career tracks, as we call them, have changed over the years. Every agent gets their initial training to become a criminal investigator. Okay. You go to initial Secret Service school of a week to get, hey, this is you. This is our history. Then you go down to FLETS here, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, an old Navy base, and you get certified as a GS-1811 criminal investigator. You go through surveillance, interrogation, federal court procedures, physical fitness, shooting. You get the basics there. Right. That enables you to investigate federal crimes and be authorized to carry a firearm. But then, because of the Secret Service different mandates, we go up to our own uh, James R. Rowley Training Center here near D.C., mm -hmm. and you go into Secret Service-specific investigations, protective intelligence, and protection because that's very okay. different. But every agent goes into a field office somewhere domestically, and you start your entire career as a criminal investigator in financial crimes. Okay, so everyone every, starts the same on that same My level. first two years was was combating counterfeiting out of the Dallas field office. Okay. And then you get farmed out to do, um, you don't wanna say low, you get farmed out during campaigns or protective visits to stand post. For every time, say the president goes to, um, uh, say say Kentucky to a site and I've been there many times right there are agents on the perimeter that have specific posts those would be brought in from field offices you have the detail around the protectee who that's their full-time job you have other ones from various specific disciplines because the Secret Service is a 
multidisciplinary organization that has all, if it's counter sniper, counter assault, um, I did airspace security. Like people don't think about how you monitor and control the airspace around the sure. president. Um, you have technical security. You have every one of those things working hand in hand with the military and and other groups to to do that. But you start as an investigator and you work your way up. Then the middle part of your career is usually some sort of protection, whether that's the president or the vice president, which are the two big details, okay. which are four to six years in D.C., former presidents. And you also get loaned out to foreign presidents. Anytime a president or prime minister of a foreign country is brought in, it is the Secret Service that protects them. If it's a foreign minister or a lower level person, that's the Department of State. They've got a tremendous group, the DSS, that protects the Diplomatic Security Service that protects those people through the State Department. But if it's a president, it's the Secret Service who does that as well. And that's where you sort of uh, cut your baby teeth and get that experience before you move on to the president. Okay. Uh, but and I, I want to talk about the, the the protective detail. But before we get to that, you said you worked counterfeiting Dallas. Yep. Mm-hmm. A lot of the counterfeiters that you that you encountered, freaking idiots, or they knew what the hell they were doing. Do you know what was funny is it, there was a difference, and that's one thing I learned very quickly that you know everybody is a sort of conglomeration of life experiences. But I rated the worst projects in disgusting areas of Dallas, and I rated million dollar homes. Okay. Um, both of whom used an inkjet printer to make money. Um, I interrogated gang members. I interrogated kids in high school who thought it was funny to give a counterfeit 20 to a mentally impaired student and tell him to go buy his lunch and let him face 20 years in prison. Right. Um, I actually, it's a funny court case where I got on cross. The only group of high schoolers printed money and I, I was brought in there to supposedly intimidate them because the local police were like, they're not listening to us. I was big time federal agent. You know, I had my 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 fifty dollar suit um, and I was driving up there. I was going to interrogate him, spill my coffee down my shirt and drop mustard down my tax. By the time I showed up, I looked like Sipowicz. Right. <laughs> um, except I didn't have short sleeves. But everybody confessed except for one kid who was the son of somebody in law enforcement and went to court. And in cross-examination, did you threaten to tear the toilets out of his parents home and send him to D.C. for analysis? And I'm like, trying not to laugh. I said, I did not threaten. I merely, because he said he flushed them and that the ink, the ink bled when he told me he did not pass them. I merely said it was a possibility that our labs were in DC and I would have to send his toilets to DC for ink analysis. So I would not call it a threat. I would call it a possibility. Son, and I will rip the shitters right out of your parents' home. I knew it. It's the strangest, <laughs> it's the strangest threat ever made. But I was known for sort of one-off cases. Like I had a, a protective intelligence case where uh, an individual who threatened the president said that when the voices vibrated his skull and told him to kill, he could smell blood and see it pouring out of the eyes of who he was talking to. So as I'm easing my chair back at the facility, I said, what do you smell right now? He leaned in and said blood. So uh, guard. Um, yeah. The, yeah it was interesting. The first olfactory hallucination, I believe, that was mentioned in a case. But Good I Lord. Know. Good Lord. So, <laughs> pr- protective detail. Uh, and, and I've read about stuff like this. Um, I've heard some stories as well, but you're going into, say you're going to Kentucky, that, that site in Kentucky. So you're going into Kentucky and, you know, you've, you've received some, someone has received some letters or social media posts or, or what have you from one of these numbnuts. Uh, you go and interview the guy. Do you, do you lock him up? What do you, what happens at that point? 
Well, that's a whole division into itself, the protective intelligence and assessment division. And my second two years in the Secret Service, I was on what we call the PI squad in Dallas, where I would do protective intelligence investigations. If Washington became aware of a threat or a local threat, those local agents, and that's how it works. We have over 127 field offices around the world that can investigate these things, only possible because of state and local and tribal law enforcement. The Secret Service is very small. There's just over 3,000 agents in the entire world. But we okay. seem to be everywhere. Um, I was the 4,448th agent in history since they started counting it over 153 odd years of, of, you know, 58, no, 58. I don't know. I do, I'll have to do the math later. Um, um, but you do, you, you, you look at it, you run checks, you try to find things out about that person, and then you go talk to them. And that's interesting because we talked about responsibility. The Secret Service, the responsibility they put on a journeyman agent, let alone protecting the president of the United States, which is more than the person in the suit. It's really, it's the continuity of the U.S. government. It's the stability of global financial markets. Right. It's, you know, the stock market would tank. I mean, it's, people's retirement savings would, would dissipate. It, an agent has to interview that person, coordinate with D.C., and write a report in which they say, Brett Johnson is or is not a threat to himself or the president. And you always say, at this time. Now, right. can you be wrong? Certainly. I don't know any other job that would put that kind of stress and pressure on a person who has their salary capped by Congress. Now, it's a first world problem, but you can only make, regardless of the hours you work, your salary is limited. Um, And your wife sees on your paycheck, you work $6,000 more than you're allowed this month and don't get it. Like, so it's a lot of stress and pressure, but you do, you interview them and you have to say, um, I did have a friend who wrote in a report. It appears the subject's cheese has slid off his cracker. Um, he was a Texan, God love him, uh, and had a, he was known for his turn of phrase and also his ability around the grill and some ribs. But um, that made it an official report as far, as far as I know. But you have to assess that person. But you assess them based on a number of factors, and you do that in concert with mental health professionals right. and local police and history. Um, I mean, it seems, the, to, it seems to be a lot to put on somebody's shoulders. Uh, it is. And the, the danger I was uh, I was investigating a threat on the president, an individual in Dallas who believed I was an actual Nazi uh, taking youth serum from the 40s. And um, you want to assess if they have um, a support system. He said that Nazis came to his door with a Chechen suitcase and hit him on the head. with. I still remember this case as if it was yesterday. Chechen suitcase knocked him unconscious and said that if he didn't kill the president, they were going to kill his family. So I asked his mother, who he lived with, to assess what his support system was. Do, were you aware? Did he share this story with you? She looked at me, glazed eyes, and said, well, I don't allow visitors. Um, so you're thinking this guy doesn't have quite the support system. Right. But this was Texas escaped inmates who would have broken into an Oshman sporting goods. Oshman means Irishman. Clinton is the Irishman. So he has to kill Clinton. It makes a lot of sense, right? You don't in even have in to, its own weird way, yeah. You don't even have to lick a toad or eat a mushroom for that to make sense. But these are the types of people, and we actually, with the local police, were tackling him as he made his way to his room where his mother allowed him to line it with weapons. Um, uh, it's it, And that's not every case, but investigated a case where a man delivered a wine bottle full of his own blood to First Lady Laura Bush at their ranch in, in Waco. Mm-hmm. You've got to deal with these people. Or this teenager who... Um, smelled blood. He he had smoked a lot of uh, rat poison laced marijuana and had a chemically induced psychosis. 
but he carjacked three cars, attempted to shoot the police, three subjects, and held the gun and fired it into a pregnant woman's stomach. The gun misfired every time before he was caught and started threatening the president. When they test fired that weapon, it worked every time. So I don't know what's going on, but those protective right. intelligence cases were were fascinating and it's it's a it's a lot. And that's something that that's one tiny factor of what the Secret Service has to take in mind. Right, right. And that's kind of an unglamorous section. You know, PPD, you got the sunglasses or VPD, you got the suit and the tie and the earpiece. These protective intelligence and threat assessment people, they also leverage it for school safety. The National Threat Assessment Center, Center and Dr. Lena Altari and her work. It's tremendous what they do to help beyond that initial mandate. Someone someone who's considered a, um, a realistic threat. Do they take them off the street just for the, the the time that the protective target is is being protected in that state and area, or or do they take them off the street for a, for a set degree of, uh, amount of time? It's it's going to be it's going to be case dependent. If okay. you are a legitimate threat to the president and you have motive, means, and opportunity, and the mental mental health stability to do it, and you've made a threat, it's a violation of federal law, and you will be prosecuted. Okay. If there's believed to be a threat or you're um, like Hinckley was followed for decades. Can't confirm or deny whether he's still followed, though he was free. Um, a lot of times you contact the local police. They'll, if some of them are just nuts um, and I don't want to use the term because I know mental health is a problem. Right. But if there's a problem there, the, just take them to lunch, take them to like um, Squeaky Frome. And um, I forget the other one who tried who shot president They tried to shoot. President Ford, I think it was right. 1975. Um, they would just take her to lunch uh, when they were visits so that she was occupied. Um, and then you also can put covert surveillance on people. We have a counter surveillance, or say we, I'm retired, a counter surveillance division that can follow people as well. Mainly they're done in a protective scenario around the presidential right. sites or vice presidential sites. But you could follow them. You could have them locked up. But mental health is complex. Someone who threatens the president, it depends on how their organizational ability. I don't know if you've ever heard that. There are delusional systems. Like, I believe my hair looks good. Clearly a delusional system. But there are diffuse delusional systems where I believe I'm Superman and encapsulated ones. You notice this a lot with politics where you have a perfectly sane person and you mention one subject. You know, um, you mention and they spin around this toilet bowl of, of mania and insanity. And, and I won't say with the political one that seems to do that right. you could bring up that's happened around covid it happened around vaccines it happened it'll happen around ford versus you know chevy a perfectly normal person if you trigger that one thing that's an encapsulated delusional system. so if that encapsulated delusion is that i have an implant in my head from the government that's telling me i have to kill the president but i'm holding a perfectly normal job and i'm a sane individual on the side that's a dangerous combination right. because my delusion can drive my organized self. But if it's diffuse, you're obvious. You see those people walking down the street with tinfoil hats and, you know, they paint their trucks and all the religious symbolism. You see it on LinkedIn every day. Right. The Secret Service will post and someone in the comments says, I need to talk to you about about the implant in my head. Medical implants and government surveillance is a very common delusion. Yeah, I had someone and- Again, full, full disclosure, I, I have gotten more than my fair share of exactly those types of people uh, about monitoring the satellites, tuning into them. And it, it's it's absolutely bizarre. Absolutely. It's bizarre. astounding. We have used to, I, remember, I still remember a case when I would man the duty desk where you have an agent 24 hours a day sitting in an area that receives the phone calls like in Dallas. And you'd get nut calls that were regulars. And 
seasoned agents hated getting because they were tired of talking to the same person. New agents, it was kind of fun. Crazy people can be fun because they not, may not be dang. This person just kept calling in and saying that it was her ex-husband in a satellite shooting her with lasers in her chair and was burning her backside and all this. So I got in a debate of whether she was mooning the satellite or he was somehow from the satellite, how he was getting her up through the bottom of her chair. And she's just silence like or um, it, sometimes it's fun because she had no interest in anything that concerned the Secret Service, but she needed someone who would pick up the phone. Right. And right. you do have to be careful that you don't question people's delusions when you've done it long enough. I have had people that you're sitting there with their crying wife and kids as they tell you about their implants or that they invented cold fusion and their coffee cup and the FBI stole it. And if right. they don't get to the president, and that's when you just go, I'm going to take you right now to get help because these things are not true. Nobody's monitoring you. You know, I mean, unfortunately, there's also the mantra that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Right. Um, so, but, so you were um, you were protective detail for a decade, right? I was protective detail. Uh, there's a few people that do it a lot. I had essentially five stops on the president's detail. Most people do it once. Um, I had two temporary assignments and I had three official assignments over a period from 2005 till 2021. Um, All so, how many U.S. presidents? Uh, I was on the detail for President Bush, 43, President Obama throughout his tenure, and for President Trump. I was a detail leader for Obama and Trump. I was an assistant special agent in charge of the president's detail. So, so let me ask you, you know, you know we see, you know, the... the the common people, we peons, we we see the, the the presidents up there. You know the um, the professionalism, everything like that. How, how, you know, you're on the detail. They they just real humans at the end of the day. Is it what? Are they just real people at the end of the day? You know they they, you know it's not the always going to be yeah it's not always got to be politics right. No, it is funny. We see a completely different side of presidents. Um, what I. It's Stockholm syndrome. It's funny. If you stand next to a stage and hear the same speech 50 times, regardless of your political affiliation, you start going, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, you're darn right. Um, you're, you're you're trapped. But you do see the human side, especially when there's families involved. You, I've traveled with president's children, got to know them very well because they're protected by the Secret Service. What's interesting is people always ask me who my favorite president is. I won't answer that. Right. Uh, I, I wasn't going to ask because I knew you wouldn't answer that. You might be able to coax out of me who my least favorite protectee ever was, because this is a person that. All right. Next episode. Um, Are you was, sure next episode? You may as well tell me now. Uh, no. It, and it wasn't the Clinton. They were wonderful. Um, OK. You, you tend to find that people, uh, people that reach that level of power and success. This sounds arrogant or maybe aggrandizing to people that I would because uh, I'm in a country that you aspire to be that. Right. They have a level of charisma that is 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 almost intoxicating. You they they know how to engage in the people around. Do they have bad days? I've been yelled at by three American presidents, um, you know, and, and, and but you see, I mean, I've heard one president tell a fart joke. I've uh, you know, you've you you see these moments or these interactions with their families and you're not in them. You're among them. You're trying not to pay attention because your focus is on protecting them. But on the inner sanctum, when it's you and the president in the limousine as a detail leader or uh, traveling with them, you're going to see these things and they're locked away because it's not there's no one else's business and it's their private life. And it's that privacy. That's where we get back to privacy. That privacy is sacrificed right. 
for the government's safety. You're protecting the president's children so they can't be used as leverage to change American policy. Um, and you do, you get to like the people you protect, but it, it doesn't matter. It, right. it's, it's you're protecting the office or the position. And, and, um, and yeah, you do see them as people. And, and, and I know we're running over, Paul. I want to I close things out here in a second, but I, I, I would ask, protecting the, the, the top leader on the planet, leader of the free world, how stressful is that? I don't know how to put a point on it because it's all I knew. I'm actually more comfortable in that scenario. I was more comfortable with a sidearm uh, on the streets of Kabul than I am doing PR and media for my current company as far as my own my own stress and anxiety because it's I'm not up I understand this world I believe I can communicate but I got to know that I did it so long that it's something I knew intricately I played every part from post-standard to protective intelligence to counter surveillance to you know I, I the advance agent the lead agent the site agent I did so it, I understood that world right um, but it is stressful and I saw the 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 negative aspects of that in supervisors and peers committed suicide, um, alcohol, um, extramarital affairs. Um, you see, because everybody handles stress differently. And I do, I know we're way over, we'll edit, we edit this down. Right. And we didn't, I don't think we even covered a lot of what you wanted to we cover. Did, man. And if you don't mind, I'd like to bring you back on to, to, to just touch a little bit more upon that uh, before we move over into fraud and then, and some other, some of these other things. Happy to have only scratched the surface of, of where we could go to with that. And um, if I've bored people to tears, I can only apologize. I feel like this is that episode on like um, Johnny Carson show where no big star was available. So you bring on Joan Embry and a, and a lemur. You know what I mean? Like you bring on the, you bring on the, the animal guy. Oh, there's a baby. No, hey, you're, you're great. I mean, you are, you're great. I, it's, um, you know, I, I, I told you before, before we recorded, I've got a, uh, a profound respect for law enforcement. I truly do. Um, I used to not, but um, I mean, you guys do an outstanding job. You don't have enough manpower. You, um, we live in a society these days where you don't get the amount of respect that you truly deserve. Um, a lot of people give up outstanding, you know, incomes and careers to just do the right damn thing. And um, it would be very refreshing if more of our society was like that instead of not. And, uh, and, and as a person who dedicated or sacrificed many parts of my life to it, I really appreciate that, especially when we're so close to 9-11. I mean, we lost a worker. Our building, Seven World Trade, was the third to fall. Right. Um, they just put up a flag in our headquarters that was recovered from the rubble that they saw every day there. But at the time, and we can pull this full circle, sharing among agencies it even led to the creation of dhs which we could fault or praise or whatever you want to say um data sharing and analytics were the key to stopping the next 9 11. and yet now congressmen regulators the media and, and it's some of it's law enforcement's fault law enforcement are not in the end they're protectors not communicators so maybe maybe they don't they don't communicate it right but they're they're a group of people who 99.9 percent .9 wake up in the morning wanting to leave the world better than they found it and protect their neighbors, friends, and family. Right. Amen. You can't say that of many people, that that's, they just, it makes them sound like angel. They're not. That's why I like to humanize law enforcement, just as it's important to humanize people that are in and of the criminal justice system, some victimized by it. You can't 
you can't deny it. I don't think you can go into any of these things blind. But that self-awareness and the humanity, as I said when I was talking about your show the other day, the humanity behind stripped down is is what it's all about. All right, so that was episode number 88 of the Brett Johnson Show. Paul Eckloff, I hope you guys enjoyed Paul as much as I did. And he's coming back. We're going to have him on uh, about two more weeks down the, down the line here. Paul, I want to thank you for watching the show. Everyone, thank you for tuning in, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this program. There's, there's tons of content out there. There's tons of very good content out there. And, and for you guys to take the time out, to listen to this show, I truly appreciate. I, I just want you to know that. I truly appreciate that. If you don't mind, uh, take the time out, hit the subscribe button. Um, if you if you like the show, hit it. If you don't like the show, hey, hit it anyway. You know, if you don't like it, you can watch it enough and bitch to me about what's wrong with it. And the thing is, is I listen to those things that are wrong with the show. Um, you know, we... we when I first started this program, I, 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 there were times, the first few episodes, you see, I don't even look at the camera. I pull this Jim Morrison bullshit where I'm not looking at the audience. And uh, the feedback from the show caused me to change that. I've had more than enough feedback about, hey, you scream a lot. You do these voices, everything else. I think, I think that's tapering off some. Um, certainly, it, it doesn't really happen that much when I'm interviewing someone. Um, and I told Paul that pre-recording, you know, that that when I do something solo, I'm much more likely to go a little ape and uh, a little nuts and get loud and everything else. But I, I, I don't want to do that when I'm talking to someone. Um, I think it's it, it's important to just have a conversation. You don't have to, you know, be through the roof when you're having a conversation with someone. But um I do listen to the feedback, so leave me some feedback. If you've got questions, leave it in the comments section. I, I tend to answer those questions unless they're just dumbass questions. Or as South Park once said, there are no dumb questions, only dumb people. I kid, I kid. Um, please leave, leave the questions. I, I, I will answer those questions. I read every bit of feedback that's there. Um, I know that a lot of people say you're not supposed to, but I read that because I want to know what you guys are thinking. If you've got a comment, a suggestion, please leave it. All right. If you need to contact me, get up with me. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter, any number of places. All right. My name is Brett Johnson. We're going to close out this program. How do we close it out? Same way every single time. Stay safe out there. Stay secure. Stay vigilant. More importantly, this is the Brett Johnson Show. At the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. My name is Brett Johnson. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time.